Hello, and welcome to Tomorrow Today, a new podcast from SAE. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. It's with an absolute honor and pleasure that we have a Dr. Mark Rosekind, Chief Safety Innovation Officer from Zooks on the podcast today. I'm so excited um, to have this conversation with you, with you about your life, about safety and automation. But I want to have it in a different way like we were talking about is you've had this incredible, distinct career and highly respected. And I want to just like kind of dive into it. Um, as a starting point, could you give us a little bit about like, you know, a little high level on your background and the current work that you're doing at Zooks and then we'll, we'll transition from there. But we'll keep it fun, right? Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Okay. So I'll start with the fact that I'm in my sixth career and still obviously trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. But I'm trained as a scientist, and so I've studied sleep and human fatigue for a few decades. Had a great pleasure of actually working with Dr. William DeMent, the guy who helped discover REM sleep, coined the term REM sleep. So just um, 30 years kind of learning how to um, take sleep and apply that to help people stay awake on the job, like astronauts and pilots and stuff, just loads of fun. Anyway, I did that in academic environments at NASA, where I ran a fatigue countermeasures program, uh, and then had my own company doing that all over the world, basically. So that's three careers. Um, and then I went to Washington and had a chance to be appointed by President Obama to be one of the five members at the National Transportation Safety Board. And at the end of my five-year term, President Obama appointed me to be the head of NHTSA, which was an incredible experience. Uh, and then after that, I am now back home in California and working at Zooks as the Chief Safety Innovation Officer which I like to point out, I'm the only one with that title, as far as I know, in the whole world. You're doing the best job of anybody in automated vehicles when it comes to safety, because I like it because you're honest. You're not sugarcoating it. And on another podcast, you, you recently laid out the number of fatalities. And you said, this is not a talking point. This is a catastrophe. Yep. And can you talk about that? Because I have to commend you and say you're 100% correct. So, uh, you know, here at a meeting I just did a keynote and I've kind of taken to starting those presentations with several slides from NTSB investigations and in the safety world we call that bent metal and basically I use that as a way to you know instead of just going right to the numbers it's important to actually go to the tragedies that occur and so we talk about names and people and how they lost their life and these you know horrible things that are happening on the highway to make it absolutely human and, and I think that's critical because part of us, and I can give you the numbers too, 2018, it's 36,560 lives were lost. But the point is every one of those numbers is a father, mother, brother, sister, you know, one of your work colleagues, a community member, a family member. And I think we need to personalize this to realize how horrific it is. And you're right, we have to personalize it and humanizing it because the, the, those accidents and, and unfortunate early deaths have had a negative impact on families and it's caused undue stress. It could have caused financial hardship and you know a lot of just deterioration and just general quality of life. A child could have lost their parent. And Grayson, you're right on it, which is that we can't bring those people back. And so it's not just that life is lost and whatever future they had for us as a world, but their families and their communities and their workplaces, all of those are changed. And we, we can never tell how much stuff actually gets lost because those people are no longer among us. And it, it, it's, it's sad, but you talk about, in, uh, about the airline analogy. When an airline goes down, there's, an, there's a global uproar. It's not, I mean, there's investigations and from countries around the world, but yet when we have the unfortunate of somebody passing away in an automobile accident, huh, 
it seems to me that it's wrong, but on a personal humanized level, it's just sad. How, how do we get over that where we, people can actually understand that? My, my father said something to me that you'll be proud of. When I was learning to drive, he said, son, this is not a car. This is a lethal weapon. Mm. Good and, for him. And just drilled it into my head. And, and I tell my wife the story. And as you know, my, my daughter's now six. Mm. And daddy, I'm going to drive. I said, no, well, daddy has friends that are working on autonomous vehicles. And don't worry, you're not going to drive. Mm-hmm. But I'll never, I think about that every single day, that this is a lethal weapon. And I drive a larger SUV, so I have a lot of gross weight. Mm-hmm. But it seems that a lot of individuals, I've noticed just my, no data, just me driving around, are more distracted and more careless than they've ever been. And I've noticed that accidents are going up just from what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing the same thing in sort of statistical data? Uh, What's challenging is statistically, we see it go up and down a little bit all the time. So it's one or 2% down or it's, you know, five or 6% up. And I always tell people, um, you know, they're lagging indicators. And so, you know, we barely get the data nine months into the next year to know about the last year. So it's always going to lag what's going on. So they're really more general indicators. And that's why I tell people, I think, you know, we should celebrate the lives that get saved when the numbers go down. So I, I just showed a slide where between 2017 and 2018, 573 people are alive today because we improved the statistics, okay? We should celebrate those and then be shocked that we still lost 36,560 on our roads. And so uh, I think your first point, though, that you started with that's really important is there's some really significant differences between when a big airplane goes down and basically realize there's a large loss of life as opposed to what happens in crashes where you have them, you know, one or two lives lost, geographically dispersed all over the place. Maybe it makes the local news, but unless it's a celebrity, it's probably never going to make the national news. So you can just look. You know, I often say we're at 100 people a day. And that puts us at about two jumbo jets worth of deaths every week for an entire year. That's the equivalent for the road safety part. What's interesting, though, is you know what? In aviation, if you had two jumbo jets go down, oh, we just had that in our society, didn't we? And it grounded an entire 737 fleet, right? And so in aviation, you see that level of safety, you know, where the criteria are, whereas on the road, somehow we've become complacent and immune to realizing how horrific it is. And you said something to me, which is, and we should really touch on is celebrity. If a celebrity gets into an accident, we saw that in California uh, late last year, where a celebrity passed away in a car accident. It makes news, but the individuals that are riding in those cars, they're celebrities to their families. That's right. And nobody talks about that. They mean more to their family than the, than the perceived celebrity because they're quote unquote famous. It's wrong. Everybody, you know, uh, a son or a daughter to their mother or father, they're a celebrity. That's right. And it just, it just baffles my mind that nobody talks about it. But what can we do to solve this? What is the really one true thing that we could do to solve this epidemic? All the deaths and the fake all the deaths, all the, yeah. yeah. So one of the things we did before I left NHTSA was actually start a Road to Zero Coalition. So Federal Highway, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, NHTSA got together and did some funding and got an associate administrator, Dr. Jeff Michael, and Debbie Hersman, who was president and CEO of the National Safety Council at the time, former chairman of the NTSB when I was there. And Jeff and, and Debbie basically got together to help get this organization started, which now has 900 different organizations that are part of it. But I bring this up to your question because um, what they did was some future forecasting work. So they actually came out with a report, took about a year to put together. 
that we could actually get to zero fatalities on our roadways in 30 years by pursuing three things. One was to enhance what already works. Two is prioritize safe systems. And three, advance new technology. And what I'd like to point out is it's the third one, the advanced new technology that's new. And so my famous Einstein example is, you know, he always told us if you keep doing the same thing but have a, you know, expect a different outcome, it's the definition of insanity. <laughs> so if we think we're going to, like, eliminate road death by just doing the same stuff we've been doing, that's insanity. And so we have to look for safety innovations, mostly coming through new technologies, and how quickly can we advance those to save those lives. And so it's a long time, but man, if we could get to 30, you know, in 30 years, we wake up and nobody died last night on our roadways, that would be amazing. It's a, it's a wonderful day, not, not just for us in the industry, but it's a wonderful day for those families that still have their loved ones. That's right. That's right. And by the way, aviation did it. They went nine years with no loss of life in commercial flights. Nine years. And by the way, it's, once you get to zero, it's harder to stay there. So they went nine years and then had a loss of one life, for example. Um, and that one is tragic. But I keep saying, get us to you know, zero on roads. And that would be uh, something worth celebrating. And it's what you said, because all of those people are alive now. The families are intact. Work is the same, right? It's just we don't have that loss because we can't bring those people back. No, we can't. And with those advanced new technologies, was that one of the first reasons or ways that you became interested in autonomous vehicles? So I'm third generation San Francisco. I'm from Silicon Valley. And so I've been watching and I think paying attention to new technology as solutions for a lot of problems. And if you think about it, energy, healthcare, food, you know, our society turns to technology as a tool to help us figure out some of these really hard problems. So why not road safety? So actually, when I was at the NTSB, I was the first board member to go out and get a ride in the Google car. You know, it's because I knew about it. It was local for me. I'd see him driving around in Mountain View, right? And I was like, I should go check that out. It was great. You know, and I literally went back to the NTSB and said, y'all got to go check this out because it's coming. You know, and I think that was my first introduction to it. And then I stayed involved watching it. And of course, when I got to NHTSA, um, now all of a sudden that's in my envelope, <laughs> right? That's in the things I got to pay attention to. And well, let's talk about the tr transition to NHTSA. You were appointed uh, by President Obama. Mm -hmm. Uh, you had to go through a Senate confirmation. What was that process like? And did your background of understanding this new technology that the, the president knew that was coming, did that have a positive impact on that confirmation process for you? I think it helped in the sense that my background and interests have really been pure. You know, I'm, I'm focused on safety. So even in my scientific career, it was all about how do I use sleep and other strategies to help people stay safe and perform well and, you know, be okay and healthy, et cetera. So I think that helped a lot. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I started at the NTSB and I was the first board member that actually like had a PhD in sleep research, you know, that actually knew that stuff. And fatigue's such a huge area in crashes and things in all modes of transportation. So it was just great to be there and actually sort of help bring that expertise to the board. Um, but I think what you're getting to is the transition from uh, NTSB to NHTSA was interesting because NHTSA, of course, is just focused on the road aspect of the safety. Um, and I really had a chance to leverage all of the broad transportation that I'd learned about at the NTSB. And I think it was an advantage, because as you remember, when I got to NHTSA, 
The GM ignition problem had been going on, so there are all kinds of investigations related to that. Takata airbags were an issue, but they said uh, only in Florida, so it's really not a problem anywhere else. And so I think it was really advantageous for NHTSA, DOT, and for my perspective to come from the NTSB where it was all about safety. Um, and people have talked about, you know, sometimes other folks have come in, but their, their background and expertise isn't in safety. It's harder for them to make those arguments or to have the purity of focus on how do we address this loss of life and injuries and crashes. It's really commendable. And I'm, I'm really curious. We've all watched a lot of TV shows. Did it say, did you get a phone call? Please hold for the president of the United States. <laughs> did you receive a letter? How was that? And that must have been a really exciting moment and a highlight of your life. What was that like? So you're one of the few people that's actually asked about that. It's always fascinating to me because it's like such a rare experience. You would think people would come and say, spend some time and tell me what's this like, right? Um, and it's not so, pardon me, but it's not quite so glamorous. It's a long procedure. Um, and in a typical situation, there's a tremendous amount of background work that goes on. So there's usually a list of people. Let's just talk about the NTSB. There's an open seat. And the um, Office of Presidential Personnel has a list of potential nominees. And so there's a lot of background work that goes on for them to decide, well, among this list, and that list could be two or three, or it could be 10, right? So they basically, like, which one do we want to pick and put forward? So they will pick you. That's one of the first calls. And it's, you know, somebody from OPP, Office yeah. of Presidential Personnel. Hi, uh, we want to move ahead. I'm sending you now dozens of forms. <laughs> You know, and it's all the background and economic and FBI forms and security stuff. It's like all this stuff. This is before you're ever chosen or nominated, okay? So then you have to go through all of that, which means FBI interviews, stories about that, fascinating. All the economic, it's like who remembers XYZ, but you gotta put it on the form. Um, and then if you actually get chosen, it's fascinating because they always call you ahead of time and say, if you were to be chosen and nominated to be, would you accept the nomination? So no one should ever get a call that they don't already know accept, right? Um, and then what's interesting, of course, is it becomes public. Because then once your nomination is out there for a Senate confirmed position, then there's all kinds of work that goes into basically preparing for a Senate hearing, votes, you have to meet with the senators, you know, sometimes before the hearing, sometimes afterwards, et cetera. It's, it's very, very detailed. And of course, they all have their own interest and agenda of what they're trying to sort of pursue for whatever the agency is with things. I can just imagine what the FBI process was like. I've been, <laughs> I've been very fortunate. Um, I went through a Secret Service background check because I was able to drive in the motorcade uh, with, with uh, President George W. Bush. Wow. Uh, Joe Press Corp. Uh, one, which was, which was a wonderful, amazing opportunity. And so I had to go through that experience, and I'm sure it's not to the level that you went through. But I think that when you're going through a confirmation process is, it's a lot of public scrutiny, and did it have any impact on your wife or your your family of going through that when the spotlight is on you and you have a lot of, let's call it not nice individuals that just, I don't want to use the word make stuff up, but just want to do reputational harm? Is that, like, how would that affect the that? I don't think that's talked about enough. If you talk to people that have been through the process, you will hear about that a little bit, but the reality is it's a real toll um, and I think it's a problem because, you know, if you want good people to come into government, um, people that have good experience and they're smart and, you know, they're all about that public service and stuff, um, it's not that you have to make it easy for them, but you can't make, you know, another barrier is having to go through the crap that gets shoveled from a lot of different angles, right? Um, and so that can be a challenge. And yeah, I got to tell you, like one of the funny stories is like when the FBI does their background check and the NTSB was lem one level, 
and that's an independent agency. NHTSA, of course, is in DOT, cabinet level, so it's tied to the administration. So there's actually a whole other level of scrutiny associated with that. Um, and so when the FBI is doing their check, you know, you give them a list of people they can call. And one of the things that's interesting is they always ask, you know, like at the end of the conversation, saying, who else should I call? So now they're on a list of people you didn't give them. <laughs> and when they call to do the background check, they don't tell you why. So I was getting phone calls from people who weren't on my list going, Mark, why am I getting called from the FBI <laughs> asking me about X, Y, and Z? And you can't tell them, you know, so it's just sort of hysterical. I'm going in and telling my wife, it's like, okay, Deb, so-and-so called, and they're like, and I had to ask literally people in the office, like, what do I tell these people when they want to know why the FBI is checking on what's going on, right? This is an interesting experience. I'm really happy that you're talking about. So you go through the confirmation process. Mm -hmm. uh, you, clear, you clear background. Then do you get the, the call from POTUS? Uh, my calls didn't come from him, ironically. So someone calls on his behalf to oh. make the offer. And yes, you do get all the, in fact, one of the coolest things I'll tell you is you get, you know, a great piece of sheepskin um, that's signed by the president and um, secretary of state. And I don't know why that is, but they actually have to sign that. So while there is an auto pen that people use to sign different stuff, et cetera, this one has to be signed by the president and secretary of state. And I say that because what's interesting is when you're confirmed, you actually have to get sworn in before you're in office, right? And what's kind of interesting is you can get confirmed, but until you get that signature on there, it's not. So if they're traveling or whatever else can actually, I understand it. Sometimes it takes a while to actually get that signature on that, that sheepskin. Wow. So you get, you know, it's pretty cool that you have that there with that. I have two of them. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so it's pretty neat. You you get in uh, to NHTSA first day. What are you what are you thinking? So I had a pretty interesting experience because the agency was being challenged a lot because of GM and Takata, and I think there was a lot of concern just about sort of. Um, what was going on, was it working fast enough, et cetera. Um, and so what was interesting about the confirmation is I literally stayed in, so mine went extreme, so I waited seven months for confirmation at the NTSB. The one for NHTSA went so fast, literally head is spinning. <laughs> it had been a year, and they, uh, you know, the previous administrator had left, and it had been a year where they didn't have anybody that, so the nomination went very quickly. Um, literally came out in early November, December, I'm having a hearing, and they moved it along very quickly. And so I literally stayed, I was ready to go home for holidays, and uh, you know, the confirmation actually comes through, and so I'm there to literally, tw I don't know, December 23rd or something, I mean, really late heading home, but to your point, what's interesting is then I'm leaving Washington and going home, and it was actually extremely useful because it took me out of the environment here and gave me a chance to go home and kind of think about, okay, how are we gonna do this? You know, there were a lot of problems that sort of had to be addressed. Um, and at the same time, you don't really wanna spend your time just managing problems, at least for me. I knew I only had two years. So when I went in serving at the pleasure of the president means I knew I'd be done January 20th, 2017. So for me, and you can ask anybody in the agency, my famous lines were, put your sneakers on and tick tock. <laughs> it's like the clock's going, we are running to whatever we want to get done. And I didn't want to spend that time just sort of trying to handle problems that were perceived or that were going on, but like how do we advance areas of safety that we have this one opportunity, let's get these things done. So it was a little different for me because I actually left Washington before coming back and getting started. Which gives you a whole new perspective. In, in the two years, and um, when I was co-chair of the task, uh, Thomas Field Task Force City Beverly Hills, 
you always had a reputation of a doer. Okay, Dr. Rosekind is, is going to do stuff. And you accomplished a lot during your tenure as Nintendo Administrator. What would you say stood out as your, as your highlight during that two-year run that you say, you know what, I did it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd actually say there were three. Okay. I'll just do them quickly. Um, I think really at the top of the list is the first, the federal AV policy, version 1.0. Because we set the foundation. And nobody knew, you know, is it going to be regulation? Is it going to be this, et cetera? And I think we hit just the sweet spot to get this started, you know? Um, so that was a big one. The second, I would say, is the Road to Zero Coalition um, and just getting that started. I mean, just trying to put an effort together that would figure out how and when could we get to zero. And, you know, a year later, they had a report that has got a roadmap for us, so I think we can do that. And the third thing is... Um, you know, we did the Takata airbag recall. It's the largest in U.S. history. Not auto recall, largest recall, you know, consumer recall in U.S. history. And I think um, without getting into all the details, what was interesting about that is when I got there, there really was no specific information about probable cause. And here I just come from the NTSB. I understood about doing these kinds of investigations, how long they could take, but more and more lives were getting lost. And it's kind of like, are we going to wait for that? or we're going to figure out how to call this and make it happen. So, you know, to your point, we used some authorities and things that had never been used before to figure out how to do this large one and actually took some control over the recall process um, so that we could make sure it would advance at a, a pace, which wasn't satisfactory, but was way better than if we just let it go on its own. You, you took control to ensure the safety of citizens of the United States, and that's been a a trend through throughout your career that you should be very proud of because as a citizen of the United States, we're, we're thankful for your service as a public servant and for the great work that you're now doing in the private sector because knowing you, you, and you have one thing, you care about the safety of others and you've done an incredible job and you're coming out of NHTSA, you're transitioning into the private sector with this clear goal of safety. What was that tra- transition like going from the uh, the public sector to the private sector focused on safety. Yeah, and I think, um, first of all, thanks for the comment, and I'm going to give you my mother's phone number. You could call me for a <laughs> message. She, what do you do exactly? You know, Good for her to hear that. It's turned out okay. Um, she should be very proud. <laughs> and she's a mom. She's like that. Yeah. But what's really interesting about your question is when I left NHTSA, I actually entertained several different sort of avenues, you know, do academic stuff or some other sort of strategic consulting kinds of things, and the industry was just one of several different things. But, you know, government's not going to build these. If you really want to go after this new technology and make a difference, you got to be in some place that's going to actually build it. So that meant, you know, a technology company, a startup, um, one of the OEMs that had projects going, et cetera. And so it was a big advantage just to have a sense of all that because I was administrator at NHTSA, um, but I waited, you know, a few months after I got home to kind of take a look at all of that and decide which path. And I think that's when I decided, to your point, um, if I really felt that this new technology is what was going to make a difference, then I needed to spend some time in there helping make sure it was going to be done safely. And that part's been absolutely exciting to be a part of. And why Zooks? You got in early, but, but w- w- why Zooks? So April will be three years. And one of the things I love to cite is that, you know, the co-founders and one in particular, the visionary guy, used to always say, what do we think this should look like in 10 years? Let's build it today. And I love that. 
You know, and I think there is no answer. Are we going to do this incremental? Are we going to do that? There is no answer. We need all this different innovation going on. But the attraction to Zooks was let's think future-oriented and see how we build that today. So Zooks is pretty unique in building the vehicle from the ground up, doing the AI, owning and operating the service, um, and really believing that having an integrated program was what's going to get you the best, the best safety, mobility, and sustainability. And we all talk about that, but do you actually have elements you can show they're going to get you there? And so that's what attracted me. Um, also thinking that a startup with this kind of the pure play focused on making this happen would be an exciting place to be. And then growing up in the San Francisco area, you didn't have to, to go far from home when you were able to, to stay home. I think one of the interesting things about Zooks that's not talked a lot about is that Zooks has done an incredible job of hiring specialists. They've hired audio specialists. You've hired engineer specialists. Um, safety specialists. Safety specialists. <laughs> and we were, before the podcast, we were chatting. I think this is an important story. Um, when I brought the mayor of Beverly Hills up uh, to visit, uh, when uh, Jesse and Tim hosted us along with Ivan, and when you were at the Slack Accelerator, mm -hmm. and we got to go in, I think it was called H1? Mm -hmm. The H1. Yeah, it was, it, was it was incredible, and you took us around the campus, and we got to hail it, and there was this one demonstration that you did of demonstrating the, the culture at Zooks and the specialties, where the vehicle would come, and you asked us to jump in front of the vehicle, and the mayor didn't want to do it. I was kind of nervous, but Jesse jumped out, and the vehicle, normal vehicle will come, and you don't see a person, like the, the screeching noise. This vehicle came to a slow, easy, steady stop. Jesse moved away, vehicle went. And then Jesse says, well, do you hear that sound? I say, excuse me, I don't hear a sound. And so I jump in front of the vehicle and I hear that sound. Mm -hmm. You had the audio engineers developing this incredible sound to let an individual know that they're in front of the vehicle. And that day resonated with me because you took us uh, around and, and showed us so many different disciplines. How Zooks wasn't all talk. Mm -hmm. Zooks was building this incredible vision and hiring the best individuals, possibly hire the gentleman from Lamborghini. Like you're hiring all these disciplines built around design yep. and, and safety. Yep. And it's really commendable. And I think that with your vision, you're, you're going to continue to do really good things there. And we can't wait to see that vehicle um, come out. So uh, two things. One is that experience you're describing was before I was there, because I'm not sure I would have let them ask somebody to step up in front of <laughs> We have protocols for that sort of thing now. I think you were at 20 people when I was there. Yeah, so I wasn't there then. <laughs> um, and so those protocols have been tightened up about when we're having humans involved with anything like that. But I, this does give me a chance, because we are starting to talk about it, but you know, my title is Chief Safety Innovation Officer, and Jesse was the first one to let this out. But you know, at currently, we've got like 41 new safety innovations that don't exist on vehicles today that are built into our vehicle. And I'll just very quickly tell you about three of them. So for example, our vehicle won't move until your seatbelt's on. So if you think about it, that capability's around for a long time, but it's not actually out there. And we own and operate the fleet so we can control you know, having your seatbelt on with all the sensors and stuff that tell us if it's not on, You'll just, you know, we can tell you, get that belt on. They'll be, you know, do that. Um, another thing is we're going right to level four, level five. So that means that if there's no steering wheel, operating controls, et cetera. As you know, in a crash, steering wheel is the first thing that represents risk for death for you, right? Get rid of that. It lets you actually rethink the airbag configuration. And so now you can start from scratch. What's the best way for us to protect you in this environment? 
because um, we've talked about this, if you're getting rid of it, we have a carriage-like situation, basically. Um, and so you get to rethink, if we're starting from scratch about you know, first principles for safety using airbags, what do we design to make that happen? And a third one is, because we're building the vehicle from the ground up, most people don't realize, but there are different crash-worthy standards for the back seat versus the front seat. So all that ride hailing where you're getting in the back seat, you're actually getting in a lower crash worthiness standard than what it has to pass for the front seat. So because we have our carriage seating, basically every position will have crash worthiness standards at the highest front seat level. So every seat will meet that. And again, if you're not building a vehicle from the ground up, it's kind of hard to redesign a retrofit to do that kind of thing. So those are just three examples of the kind of safety innovations that we're putting in, some of them basically invisible to you, but are adding levels of safety that don't exist on vehicles that are on the road today. But to go back to earlier in the conversation as a parent, that puts a smile on my face. Yes. So if I know if my daughter's going to ride in that vehicle, I know she's going to be safe. The vehicle must have the seatbelt. Like, as you know, with a little kid, okay, can't, car can't go into reverse or drive without the seatbelt in, and we're teaching her how now how to put the seatbelt in on her, on her own in the whole yep. process. She's in a booster seat the whole process. W- was that your idea? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, br- it's brilliant. Well, and, and I think um, we're at about 91% use of seatbelts in the United States now. So we, we broke 90 during my tenure. Um, and again, I don't take any credit for that. It's just that the agency's been on that click it or ticket and all this stuff for a long time. So we're, we broke 90. But what's interesting is in crashes where people die, 50% of the people who die aren't wearing their seatbelt. So it's like the first thing you should do. And by the way, it doesn't matter what mode of transportation you're on. When I see people on airplanes not wearing their seatbelts and stuff, I'm kind of like, people, just start by putting the seatbelt on, right? And so it seems so straightforward and obvious. And yet there's still plenty of people um, like I say, 50% that actually lose their lives in crashes aren't wearing their seatbelt. So again, the first thing you do is like, don't move until everyone's got their belt on. Does that, does it, historically in society, does the seatbelt start at home of teaching the, the, the parents, teaching the children, then the children teaching their children? Is that where that kind of starts from? And then you get rebellious kids that say, I don't want to do what mom and dad want me to do. Is that, is that where you see that kind of the drift off. And what you're talking about is actually where a lot of the safety piece starts with not just teaching them, but being a model for it. And so you're talking about seatbelt, but we have the same issues around distraction and phones, right? So um, in fact, we started a really cool program at NHTSA that was basically trying to get the kids in the back seat. Mom, dad, can I make that call for you? So instead of having the, you know, the parent in the front modeling bad behavior of actually talking on their phone in their hand, it's more like, how do we use the kid to try and, you know, bring a higher level of safety to that parent? Yeah, and I'm noticing it in my car has like a little compartment um, in the middle where my phone could sit, but it can plug in. So I never have to see the phone. Yep. And then emails turned off and text messages are turned off and it's just, it's brilliant. I don't yep. even think about it. Sometimes I forget about it. I go in the house or I go into the restaurant yep. and it's there, but you don't think about it. And guess where's, well, daddy, where's the phone? I don't know. Like, I just don't think about it. <laughs> yep. And then you talk about how you always have to, to look for the road. Mm-hmm. And as you're looking down the road, you're working on incredible safety innovations. You're testing the Toyota vehicles around San Francisco. You recently announced that uh, for periods of time, you're going to test in Las Vegas, Nevada. What are those different testing environments like from a regulatory environment? They're com- two completely different states, different policies. What is that like from, from a regulatory environment? So that's actually pretty important. 
And I think what's interesting is, as much as people focus on all the technology challenges, <clears throat> there are all these other regulatory and policy challenges as well. And I always tell folks, it's like you can have the best tech in the world, but if there's a policy that keeps it you know, in the garage, who cares, right? <laughs> um, and so to your question, what's really interesting is you really have to think about federal, state, and local kinds of policies and regulations. And so what you're getting to is trying to have some consistency, consistency at the federal level is really critical, but we need to see that at the state level Though, right now, we're in such a moment of innovation, it's actually great to see some states trying to do things slightly differently. And in fact, one of the things I used to always try and support was rapid prototyping, not just from an engineering standpoint, but think about it from a policy standpoint. So how do you try and get states or cities actually doing different kinds of things? And then let's share the data so we can figure out who's actually, you know, figure something out that's useful as opposed to, whoop, that's not going to work. No, it's healthy because, you know, I live in Florida now and our, our policy for AVs is very, with undercover DeSantis, is very friendly compared to uh, California is very restrictive. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as having an issue as you eventually start to put passengers in your vehicles in San Francisco area and then charging? Do you see, based on the current regulation, any sort of opening where they will allow you to, to take a paying passenger? So the California Public Utilities Commission is sort of currently evaluating that right now. They have a pilot program going on, and you cannot charge, even in the pilot program, which is interesting because if you're trying to figure out what the price sensitivity is and how low can you go and what will people pay for, for what kind of service, you got to do that. So, I mean, it's a whole part of the economic piece that nobody's actually going to understand because you can't actually charge for it now. That's their call. And I think generally for the question that you're asking is that people are going to find places where they can um, figure this out. And if it's restrictive, then people will find another place to go figure it out. And, and the challenge for me, and again, I'm third generation San Francisco. And so, you know, living in Silicon Valley, and it's like I would love to see this there. Um, but I think places that work with you to figure out how to make, you know, this safety, mobility, sustainability opportunity real are going to see the benefits of that. And the others are going to lag behind probably as people go elsewhere to figure it out. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you in, in, in Florida, and it's an open invitation. Is when you are interacting with uh, local elected officials, state elected officials, you do a really good job. What is the message that you're, you're telling them? Because you and your, your team do, in my opinion, one of the best jobs of communicating the message around the benefits of autonomous vehicles. Your deep background on safety resonates. What are those meetings like when you're meeting with these elected officials and talking about this new technology? Well, thank you for sort of recognizing how the team works, because it's small but highly experienced. And, and I agree. I think, you know, we really try to understand what the city's needs are, what they're looking for. And how do we make sure that they, because there's so many things about AVs that people don't know. Don't go in and just give them a pitch. It's more like, what do they have questions about that they're trying to understand? And that can be, again, in the safety area, mobility area, sustainability area. And then in the city, they've got just practical stuff that they got to deal with. Things like pick up and drop off with curb space. Or for us, we're all electric. So is the grid going to be able to handle what we need, you know, if they're out up, our vehicles are out operating during the day and then come home to be maintained and charged. Is the grid going to be able to support that or not, right? And then the city's got its own stuff to kind of figure out about parking or tax or this or that, you know. So you got to understand what their issues are so you can help address those and where you don't have an answer, where you're willing to work with them to help figure it out. Again, that's where this rapid prototyping, even in policy or other areas, is really important because there are a lot of answers we don't have yet. No, you're right about answering the questions, and I have to tip my hat to you again, is that 
you've done a really great job interacting with law enforcement. Is that based because your father uh, was an officer, because the deep respect the corporation of Zooks has for law enforcement the bill, and the willingness to be transparent with law enforcement that I've seen throughout your colleagues? Is that go back to, you know, as a child of, your, of seeing your father as a respected um, law enforcement official? I didn't get a chance to see that because my father was a San Francisco police officer, a motorcycle officer who was killed in line of duty. So he was actually chasing a traffic violator when somebody ran a red and hit him. So I was three and a half, my brother was two, so I was just raised by my mother. Um, so that line of duty death, though, sort of makes you part of the family. And that means that I've been around law enforcement kind of my whole life. Um, in fact, when I was at NHTSA, we did a lot to help support law enforcement. It ends up um, typically in any given year, more lives in law enforcement are lost in car crashes than because of gun violence. It's starting to change in our society, but it's like most people don't know that. Um, and so road safety, even for officers, is just really, really critical. Um, but I think to your point, that's given me both um, knowledge and respect and some access, you know, with law enforcement. And I always tell my team, it's like, I don't care what city you go to, but the first responders, you know, the cops, the firefighters, the EMTs, et cetera, they're there no matter what. In fact, even with the political stuff, they come and go. Uh, those cops and firefighters, they're going to always be there. And they're the ones who are the first ones on the scene. You know, when bad stuff happens, they're the ones who have to be there. And so, yeah, I think we've gone... Um, I've said this again and again, but I want us to have the absolutely best education and training and interactions with uh, all the first responders in any city that we're going to go and test or operate. And part of that's just showing respect for them because they're wondering too. I mean, we got lists and lists of the questions they have, and we've had 70, 80, I don't know, you know, questions that we've listed and probably 12 to 20 different interactions we've had just all over the place trying to understand, you know, what do you need to know and how we're going to help you with your education training to make sure that you're comfortable when these things actually come to your city. Yeah, because law enforcement, they're wonderful people, but more importantly, they're part of our community. Absolutely. And they're a they play a vital role in our community and they have to be a, a, you know, a part of this process. And bringing this full circle, was, was that unfortunate accident was that what really put you on this incredible, distinguished career that you've so done? It's interesting because, again, I was three and a half. My brother was two. So we didn't really know our father. Um, and I would say, actually, the first time I really talked about this much was at my Senate confirmation for NHTSA, where there was just a line or two in there sort of acknowledging this. And, and many, many people who know me for a lot of years didn't know about that history. Um, and I say that because I think um, it hasn't been conscious for me. You know, it's kind of interesting as I reflect over multiple decades now that I think, um, as we were saying, that's so personal for me and it's like such a part of who I am, et cetera, um, that I think it's just been, you know, a part. And so I always say it's like I don't wear a badge on my shoulder. Um, you know, here's what happened to me, et cetera. But I personally understand when we talk about um, those family members are celebrities. You can't bring them back. It's like, I know that from my youngest years, basically. Um, and again, anything we can do to make sure no other family, you know, no other person has to experience that. Um, and I think that's part of my urgency. Uh, I, as much as I can push to get things done, I always count progress in lives saved. You know? And then when you delay, that's a cost in lives. And you can't do it in a risky way 
right, in a way that you know is not going to be good. But the point is, you know, the faster we get to this, the faster we move toward those 30 years so that we wake up and there's nobody who's died on our roadways the day before, that's a success for everybody, right? I mean, it's a complete success. And you've been quoted as saying autonomous vehicles represent perhaps the single greatest opportunity in roadway safety in the last 100 years. And this humanizing of, of safety conversation that we have has just been really eye-opening. And um, I can't thank you personally enough for your public service and your dedication to safety and humanizing this story and where pe individuals around the world can, that will listen to this can relate to it because safety starts at, at home and safety is very, very important. And, and vehicle accidents affect every single one of us. It might not be today. It, it could be tomorrow. We don't know. But collectively as a society, we have to work towards a really safe road environment for our children and our children's children. And Dr. Rosekind, I thank you very much for coming on the SAE podcast tomorrow today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.